This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SupChina Access and you get all that and much more, with stories and everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the University of California at Irvine, second stop on my whirlwind south-to-north California tour, my Nanxun. This is the Nanxun leg of it. It seems like every political movement has its anthems. The old Jacobites back in uh, the 1740s had Charlie is my darling. Uh, the American revolutionaries appropriated an old tune Yankee Doodle, which was actually originally meant to mock the coarse and boorish colonials and made it their own. The French revolutionaries, meanwhile, had the very rousing La Marseillaise. They win the prize for the best anthem. Uh, the American Civil War featured the Battle Hymn of the Republic uh, and, of course, Dixie. And a song called The Battle Cry of Freedom, which was actually sung by both the blue and the gray. You had the Wobblies in the U.S. and a whole repertoire of great protest songs. The Depression, we had, you know, memorable tunes like Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? You had Woody Guthrie in the 40s with This Land is Your Land, which was actually a, a great protest song. Does, doesn't sound like one anymore when we sing only the first two verses. Um, obviously... The, the likes of, you know, which side are you on or we shall overcome or give peace a chance or Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Uh, and then everything from Free Nelson Mandela to Fight the Power uh, by Public Enemy. You get the idea. China has also produced a great many songs meant to stir the spirit. Uh, you had many revolutionary anthems and songs sung during the War of Resistance, including, of course, the March of the Volunteers, which became the People's Republic of China's national anthem. Red songs written during the Civil War or during the Maoist years were some of the first that I heard. The East is Red and Socialism is Good and Die Hang Xin Kao and uh, more. Anyway, some of these have been revived and repurposed since, as we will discuss today. In 1989, along with Sui Jian's Nothing to My Name, uh, the students also sang the International, the Guozi Ge, which my old band, Tang Dynasty, did in arrangement of a couple of years later. And of course, during Bo Xilai's years in power in Chongqing, he revived many of these red songs and started something of a movement. In Hong Kong, we have heard a number of songs sung by the protesters. And speaking for myself, at least, the effect is really quite moving. I don't think you have a soul if you aren't moved a little bit by this. Uh, there's Can You Hear the People Sing from the musical Les Miserables. There's uh, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord. There's the song by the band Beyond called Boundless Oceans, Vast Skies. And, of course, there is the unofficial anthem, Glory to Hong Kong. 
Well, today on Seneca, we are talking about music and protest, and I am delighted to have with me Jeff Wasserstrom, Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine. Jeff is probably the one China academic who best embodies the very laudable effort to popularize specialist knowledge of China, to break it out of the old ivory tower and get it out there. Uh, to that end, he's written for uh, many, many magazines and has written several highly accessible books on facets of China and its history. His latest book is called Vigil. Hong Kong on the Brink, which will be out in February, I believe. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, it's coming out February 11th. Well, welcome to Seneca, man. Hey, it's great to be on again. Yeah, great to have you back. So, uh, Jeff, uh, let's start with with a historical question. How far can you go back in Chinese history and find song or verse that's sort of tied to, to political movement? So I'm not sure exactly how long songs go back, but certainly poetry um, goes back very far. And one of the places that um, it it becomes important, you can go back further, but one place it's important is in the Boxer Uprising. And some of the only things we have left from the Boxers themselves are these doggerel verses, huh. making fun of foreigners and their bizarre sexual habits and belief systems and things well, like that. Fair is fair. We have that. <laughs> yeah, so it goes back that far. <laughs> okay, well, um, the first songs that I am aware of probably come from the Republican period, when you have some both pro-Republican and and then later on sort of pro-communist songs or anti-Japanese songs set to the same old song, uh, which is a French classic, which can be sung in round, good old Frère Jacques. Tell us about Frère Jacques. You've actually written about Frère Jacques. So Frère Jacques is amazing because as far as I, I don't know of cases in say, the U.S. protest movements where people put new lyrics to it. But it lends itself very nicely to um, criticizing sort of anything. There was an anti-imperialist version, sort of down with the powers, down with the powers, save China. It's done in Chinese, but that's basically what it translates as from the 1920s. And um, we have some of that preserved in a documentary film about China and Revolution, where an old man talks about when he was young being taught this. It entered, Fer Jaca entered China through missionaries, and then it was put to anti-missionary, anti-imperialist um, meetings, and then it starts showing up in all sorts of different movements. There was even a Tiananmen version of it, which is the one, um, the one thing I'll, I'll sing. Da dao yiga, da dao yiga, deng xiaoping, deng xiaoping, haiyu liu mang, haiyu liu mang, yang shang kun, yang shang kun. Doesn't even rhyme. <laughs> ah, it doesn't quite rhyme, but deng xiaoping is nice. It sounds like yeah. a ringing bell, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I, I remember the earlier version of that was something, I, I just remember the, the second half of it. I couldn't really, the, the old guy in that, that China in Revolution, which is an excellent, excellent documentary, um, he sings something like, something like that, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember that, that, so. There was also this weird version of it in the 1940s. There was a student protest where they were trying to go to Nanjing to present a petition to the government complaining about the Nationalist Party. And the Nationalist Party sort of blocked the train. And then they they started singing to the tune of Frere Jaca, like, if the train won't start, if the won't, train won't start, we'll drive it, we'll drive it. So, you know, <laughs> you can do almost anything to it. Well, wow. you were telling me earlier that you, you had brought this up with Karma Hinton and, um, asked her, you know, how, do, where did this come, come from? How did they, why were they singing this foreign song? Uh, to which she replied. So this was, I, I, there was a version of it during the Cultural Revolution that was an anti-imperialist. And of since, course Karma, there was. <laughs> since Karma grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution, I was saying like, you know, wasn't it ironic that you were singing this anti-imperialist song to a foreign tune? She goes, no, no, that's a Chinese folk song. 
she'd grown up learning it in, you know, in grade school and thinking it was Chinese. <laughs> Funny. So um, way back in ancient history, 17 years ago, I, it was July of 2002, you actually published a piece in the magazine The Nation about the role of, of, of music in the Tiananmen protests. Uh, and it started with a little excerpt talking about Wu Kaisi, who, of course, was one of the more prominent student leaders in 89, uh, and about how he thrilled an audience when he sang the song Northern Wolf by the Taiwan singer Qi Qin. Um, Qi Qin is, is a guy who's probably, his career probably peaked in the eighties or the nineties. He was just a fantastically popular Taiwan singer and one of the first ones to get really popular. He's, you know, a rocker, uh, you know, long hair, the whole works. And Urkaisi had told the audience about how Qi Qin and Cui Jian were ultimately more important to the protest movement than the astrophysicist Fan Lijie, who, you know, we, we you know, those eggheads like us <laughs> tend to sort of revere as one of the, the, the leaders of it. Um, your response to that, uh, the reason that you liked that comment by Uruk Haisi was, was really interesting. But before we get to that, let's talk about this Qi Qin song, which was from 1985. He was, like I said, kind of a, a bad boy rocker guy. Uh, he was wildly popular when I was there in the late 80s and the 90s. Well, tell us about this song. So it was, I mean, what was interesting is it was partly about this kind of evoking of the frontier and things. And Murakaishi himself had ties to um, to Xinjiang. He is a barbarian still. I know this because he's been on my show and the guy's crazy. He's great. Yeah. <laughs> So he was, you know, he was, but what he was trying to get apart across was that a lot of what was driving people in the late 1980s was wanting more choices and a sort of sense of wanting to be freer to be individuals within a very collectivist kind of, of setting. And so things like freedom of expression were, were important, as well as not just in this kind of abstract political terms, but also just very kind of pragmatic lifestyle ones. They wanted to be uh, free spirits and be able to act on it. And I, I was really aware of this most in 1986. I was in Shanghai as a student working on my dissertation mm. on student protests of the past, of the pre-49 period, and the student protests began in 1986 there. And one of the things was Fang Li had given these speeches about democracy. But in Shanghai, at least, one of the things that motivated students to get involved was a rock concert by the beach band uh, Jan and Dean, <laughs> which had been one of the groups that had toured China. Wham! had come the year before. Right, 85, right. And that was a big deal in Beijing. Um, but, you know, Jan and Dean playing and, and some young people were really excited about being able to go to this concert. And then they got up to dance during the concert because that's what they thought you did. And some security guards told them to get back in their seats. And they just saw this as like symptomatic of this half opening to the West that was going on, right. half opening to the world. They wanted to be like people their age around the world, and they weren't being allowed to, but they were getting a taste of it. And I think the role of rock music at Tiananmen says a lot about that. It's like wanting to create an alternative space on the square where you could dance. And the lyrics are... Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll translate him really quickly. I am a wolf who comes from the north. Uh, it goes on, on to evoke like a lot of stepland imagery, like you were saying, uh, the biting cold and the empty grasslands. It's it's really wolf totem y stuff. It, it it evokes this one this kind of distinct form of northern Chinese masculinity. 
I, I feel like uh, yeah, real individualism. No, I think, and, I think yeah. there is a lot to that, and there was there was that in the movement too. I mean, we do tend to idealize all these kinds of movements, but there was, of, of course, a sort of machismo to some of some yeah. of the protesters, definitely. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, I, like I mentioned, um, we're, since we're staying in the rock idiom right now, let, let's talk about that that the truly iconic song of the movement, which was Tui Jian's song "Yu Soyo." Tell us about that song. So. The, the lyrics are hard to, I mean, it, it doesn't have like, uh, there, there are protest songs where that wear their protest uh, element on their, on their sleeve, you know, give peace a chance or something right. like that. And we should get around to John Lennon, by the way, because he's a connecting thread Absolutely. to the Hong Kong protests. Um, but there are other ones that are just subtler, that, that evoke a kind of mood and a desire. And, and, you know, Nothing to My Name was sort of a feeling that a generation that wants to be able to claim something for itself. And the movement was its claim for that. It's saying, you know, and and I love the scene um, that has has that song playing and shows Sui Jian um, arriving at the square in the film The Gate of Heavenly Peace. And by Karma Hinton, who we just by Karma Hinton yeah, right. circling around. Yeah. Um so that song is actually it's a love song, right? Or it's it's, it's about a, a a a young man who's impoverished obviously nothing as i have nothing to my name who is longing for a woman and he 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 asks her to go with him and she just sort of laughs and says you know nothing nothing to your name yeah won't you come and go with me is that so that it also has that kind of thing like you know won't you join me and so you think about it like even though even though the the lyrics aren't about protest it has that kind of call to come 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 join me in an effort right and even if it's a love song it can then be Join me in this movement. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting that somehow, I mean, that song probably came out in '86. I'm, I'm thinking that was that that was the Sounds year '86 right. yeah. or '87. Uh, Tui was wildly popular. That was from his first album, which is called Rock and Roll on the New Long March. And it's it's interesting though that that of all the songs was the one that really grabbed everyone. It's it's a fantastically good song. I, I think it's a bit ruined at the end by the, the double time. Um, when it gets kind of like this, it has this kind of almost flippantly ska ending, but the, the, it has a real gravitas through most of the song, right? Yeah. And it's still, I mean, this is where, you know, we can analyze these things, but at some point it's either got to grab you as a song or it doesn't. Yeah. And this one yeah. does grab you. Absolutely. I mean, I still, I hear it now and I still get shivers. I'm curious what you made of Tang Dynasty's version of the International. Uh, I've been really amused at the way people have interpreted that and some of our other songs. Uh, really amused often at the way that people imputed political motive or political intent to not just that or not just our our songs, but to Chinese rock more generally back then. Uh, what did you make of that when you when you heard it? What, what did you imagine our intent was? So, so it's really interesting because you know during during the Tiananmen movement there was singing of the International, and but it was sung straight. 
And the idea was sort of like, if you really listen to the lyrics of this, aren't we representing this on the square as right. much as or more than you are as the government? So that's one thing you can do with, um, with a kind of official song. You can like claim it as your own. But the other thing you can do is you can, you can play with it. You can, um, you can mock it or you can sort of say, uh, I'm not taking this as seriously as you want me to take it. Uh. And so I, of course, when I heard, you know, the Tong Dynasty version, the first thing I thought of was Jimi Hendrix with the Star Spangled Banner. Uh huh. And mixing it around, you know, and there were other versions of this. I knew, you know, growing up, there were, there were times um, when people, you know, I grew up during the, uh, I was young, but during the anti-war movement and things like that, and there were times when people would put new mocking lyrics to an official song, right? Like "You're a grand old flag" became "You're a grand old rag," you know, right, 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 things like that. But my then country's was, sick of me. Yeah, I'm you going would to do Germany. All of that yeah. and but. But with the Hendrix thing, it was more like, let's take something that's sacred and show that it's actually something you can play with. Mm. So that's how I thought of the International. We played it really straight, though. I mean, didn't yeah. change the thing, didn't Did change any of the lyrics. The melody stayed exactly the but same. It was just, just the instrumentation. Just the, just, just the instruments. Just rocked it just up. Just the instruments. Will, yeah. That'll change it. One of these days, I'm going to dig out of a box of tapes a recording of the original demo for that that we recorded in '91. And um, if I I haven't heard it forever, but I I think that it was a lot better. <laughs> it was uh, the, the one that ended up on on the recording. It has you know this sort of Soviet style choir singing on it at one point. It's 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 kind of. A little bit cheesy and, and not as raw and punky as the original one well, was. Well, I've only heard the one version. And yeah, I, love it, so I will have to I'll, share I'll, that I'll with you. I'll look forward to hearing the other one. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the Sing Red movement that Boisilai pushed in the period, roughly from 2010 to 2012. Uh, what's your take on that? What was his uh, his thinking, and and what was the impact of his appropriation of these old cultural revolutionary songs? So I think you know it's part of this larger. Um, reclaiming of elements of of the Mao era. And I, I think it's, you know, it's complicated in, in many ways. I mean, that one of the things is it, it cannot, music can operate at a bunch of different levels. At some level, the songs that you know when you're a teenager just have a special effect on you through the rest of your life. I mean, I know it, I know it now. When I hear a song come on the radio that was something I dismissed as just where it's not on the radio now, but when I hear a snatch of a song that I dismissed as, you know, shallow pop music that I didn't really care about when I was 16, I hear that now and I get a kind of nostalgia for it, even if it was a song I didn't like. And so there is a way that people, even people who are 
totally scarred by the Cultural Revolution, who were of an age when that, w- that was the music they were singing, it can appeal to them at that level. So the Red Song movement could could attach, could could evoke a kind of nostalgia just for people, even if they suffered during that period, it's hearing the old songs again. But there was also a sense of that there's been in, in China for many people for now quite a while, of a sense of something missing, of, um, of just... That spiritual there's vacuum. Be, there's a spiritual vacuum that can lead people to different kind of religions, but it can also lead people to looking for something that was lost from a from a, an age where sure, yeah. it was just more to believe in. So I think it operates at those multiple levels. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good analysis of it. Um, and those some of those songs are really damned stirring. They're really, really, really. I, I for me, there are a couple that that just do it to me completely. One is the um, the song of the gorillas. Do you know this one? Yoji mm-hmm. I probably know it, but I don't know Anyway, I can't remember all the lyrics, but that that one was we we were toward the end of Tang Dynasty's career. We were trying to work up a really mm. cool little um, metal version of that, but uh, <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, it would have been fun. But yeah, sing sing red movement. Up. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's. Curious. I mean, what would have happened? I wonder. You know, if if Bosila had emerged on top, would we would it, would it would be more overt invocation of the Mao cult than we're seeing now, or uh, or less? It's it's one. Well, so I think we see we see in Xi Jinping. Initially, there was the thought that he was the repudiation of everything that that Bosila was about because they were competitors. But actually, you see a similar effort to fill whatever that hole is, and with some kinds of Mao Mao evocations. In right. his case, it's evoked through a book that everybody's supposed to be paying attention to reading, which is different from, yeah, I guess if I had to choose between you take the, song. Uh, the Xi Jinping <laughs> book or the Moshi Lai songs, I, I would take the songs. Yeah, uh, not, not a tough choice. We, you, you mentioned John Lennon just now, and I think we, we do need to, to bring him up here. And and the idea of, of rock music and politics, and just to bring it back to what I was talking about earlier, how uh, it, it always sort of... Um, when I would be asked, as I was routinely asked about Tang Dynasty's music and and what the political content of it was, my instinct back then was to say, I mean, this is this is sort of the official line, and this is not just me, but all the other guys in the band. It was like, you know what, China is not the United States, and this is not the 1960s, and and there's the tendency to to sort of you know insist that that you can find a counterpart to everything that that that's that's wrong, and. Uh, the idea that our, our music necessarily contains some sort of political motive to it, you know, it seems absurd. I, I remember reading uh, some some work by some scholar who I've, I've confronted about it. He hasn't he hasn't answered me ever, but he had written that uh, our that we were sort of this selling this idea of uh, a critique of current CCP by evoking a, a glorious bygone age. That wasn't it at all, actually. In fact. I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but the 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 truth of the the meaning of the the name of the band and what it was supposed to evoke was it was almost a sort of a celebration of reform and opening. It was this idea that the Tong was great precisely because it was open and cosmopolitan. That was its strength, and maybe today we're in an, another period where openness, um, unembarrassed borrowing from outside, and uh, would would lead once again to greatness. And and 
the of course the, the selfish motive was that we needed to package it in a way that it would simultaneously appear to be something familiar that it would sort of convey this idea subliminally uh but it would be you know we were sneaking something decidedly foreign into a chinese audience but, uh but the idea that you know rock music was inherently the music of protest for some reason i rebelled against that i less so today i definitely um i think that of course, it had you know some of that adolescent angst and and and, and rage in it. I mean, it had to, but I, I don't know what. Well, it was. I think I think it's interesting that sometimes we associate certain genres with kinds of politics. We associate rock music with rebellion, but of course, there was there were efforts to tame rock music, and there can be um, pro government rock music in any setting, and you can actually find also genres that seem. Um, that seem incredibly tame that can be put to radical uses. So sure. in the Hong Kong protests, some of the, you know, canto pop singers have become Denise Ho being the, the main most one. obvious example. Very, yeah. When you, if you listen to some of her songs, you don't think, oh, okay, this is somebody who's going to be at the front of a protest movement. Right. It can be. Um, hymns can take on uh, political meanings or totally non-political meanings. Sing hallelujah to my Lord. Yeah. Exactly. It's there, and there have been efforts to use rap music to promote Xi Jinping's policies. So, <laughs> you know, if that can happen, it, it's wrong to mistake genres for politics. You know, different things can be fed into them. You can have, um, you can have subversive country music and you can have very conservative country music. So the question is sort of how it, how it operates in certain in certain places, and you could have things. So early in the Beatles, there were things that were rebellious about the fact they were doing what they were doing. Right. But there really weren't protest songs, sort of obviously. John Lennon, but, but who, it was transgressive you know, in its day. Right. I mean, transgressive so. is a good way to put it. You right. Know? Right. Right. You can think of transgressive without being necessarily obviously overtly political. Right. And that's what Sweet Jen was exactly. all about. Right. I exactly. mean, exactly. And you can have something that's transgressive. But people miss it, which was the case famously in the U.S. with Bruce born in the USA, born in yeah. the USA, yeah, exactly, you know? right, right, right. And it's sort of a little bit too subtle. But I think John Lennon, at a certain point, it, there's no ambiguity to give peace a chance, right? And his song that was what I was thinking of with the connecting thread was "Imagine." In 2014, when the Hong Kong protests were at a much more um, optimistic and hopeful moment. One of the banners when I went over during the umbrella movement that caught my eye at first was one that was saying, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of timeless appeal to that kind of, that song, which you can imagine people at 18 and all kinds of times and places being captured by. Ironically, now they're called Lenin Walls, and that sentiment is hardly to be found. So the Lenin Wall, the the Lenin Wall connection. So people weren't singing. I didn't hear anybody sing Imagine, uh -huh. but there was that lyric from Imagine, and there was the first Lenin Wall in Hong Kong right. in 2014. The Lenin Wall itself, the idea of a Lenin Wall came from Prague. Prague in the early 80s, after John Lennon's assassination, some people in Prague who identified with John Lennon as a kind of um, a radical voice, but somebody who was kind of outside of the Cold War. And they put up, um, they painted sort of graffiti in colorful ways on a wall in Prague. And that be that was the Lenin Wall. So then um, in Hong Kong in 2014, they put up this thing that they called the Lenin Wall that was inspired in part by that, but it immediately got local twists. One thing is when these things happen, whether it's a song like Farajaka 
or a protest tactic, it gets localized when right. it tra travels. So in Hong Kong, unlike in Prague, the, the Lenin Wall was largely post-it notes, colorful post-it notes, which uh, individual people in Hong Kong wrote things out at. Right. You'd and, expect that from a, an island of shop of, of, of white-collar workers. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It was totally localized and cosmopolitan at the same time. Yes, yes. Um, speaking of Lenin, um, I'm speaking of Prague. There's another Czech-China connection that's musical as well. Uh, Charter 77 was really sort of built on the backs of this band called Plastic People. Right, uh, in that was popular in the mid seventies in 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 the Czech Republic, and uh, I guess it was Czechoslovakia still then, and it's 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 interesting that uh, that was very much the the touchstone for a lot of the early sort of more political Chinese rockers, and again uh, that that led to Charter seventy seven, which was echoed in Charter o eight in China and Sui Jian recorded an album, The Power of the Powerless, exactly, which, which was is the name of Havel, Václav Havel. Another book, connection. Right? So it's very interesting, these flows back and forth. Indeed. Indeed there is. So let's let's move on and talk more directly about Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong, you know, you've written a book about, about and we'll ask you to talk a little bit about that, but uh, there's a long history of protest there. Have songs played a role in earlier protests that you're aware of in Hong Kong? Well, the... The 2014 is the the first moment that I really paid attention to it. Uh -huh. There were songs before, but those those songs and the song that I was intrigued by in part because of this Frere Jaca obsession. <laughs> so there's a f song tied to France that was important. Do you hear the people sing? Of course, yeah. And um, what's really interesting is so that was via so, Broadway. <laughs> so via Broadway, so you can take it back to um, you know rebellion rebelliousness in France in the 19th century. You can take it forward to Broadway and then it comes over. And, you know, it's a kind of generic, um, you know, can you hear the people sing it? It's calling on the authorities to pay attention to what the people are saying. Sure. But um, there's a wonderful poet in, um, and translator and editor and activist in Hong Kong, Tammy Ho, who wrote a sort of um, memoir piece about the umbrella movement and and how it was dividing her family and other things like that. But one thing she did was take apart the the lyrics to this song from Les Miserables, and she said that in the Cantonese version, the meaning of it has changed quite di quite distinctively. Hmm. When you sing a song in a different language, you have a lot of freedom with the, you have to have be free with the translation because you have to have it fit the the rhythm, sure. the meter, and the rhyme. And in Cantonese, it becomes, have you spoken out yet? Or who has not really? spoken out yet? So it's actually calling on people to come and go with me if we want to circle back. It's saying, join us here, rather than necessarily saying to the, the government, why aren't you listening? It's saying, if you love, I mean, to, to really interpret it a, a bit further, if you love this place, why aren't you on the streets now? So it's a quite different... Um, and people sang it both in English and in Cantonese, the two languages of Hong Kong. Right. What about the lyrics to what's become the most famous of the anthems, Glory to Hong Kong? What do you know about the history of that song? Uh, who wrote it and uh, who composed the music and so forth? So mostly what I know about what I know about the song comes largely from the China Heritage um, website yeah, that Jeremy, Jeremy Barmay. Barmay runs. And there are different versions of it on there and you mm -hmm. can get the whole background. I mean, what's what's interesting to me about it, a, a couple of things. Um, one is that I was just I was just in Hong Kong uh, on December 8th for this massive uh, peaceful march, right. or the most recent one. On the date, by the way, December 8th, the anniversary of John Lennon's assassination. Ah. Nobody 
was paying attention to except me and my Twitter feed. And I, I saw those two things. And I thought that was so interesting because John Lennon had had this connection to the earlier Hong Kong protest. But what was interesting on December 8th this year was that was the only song I heard. That it's really, there were a variety of songs that were kind of during the umbrella movement, Beyond's song was important. The Les Miserables song was important. There were different ones. And early in this year's movement, um, the Hallelujah to My Lord was, was imp- the variety of ones were important. But on December 8th, the Glory to Hong Kong was the only one that people were singing. So it really had achieved this defining the community anthem um, status. Mm. And there were, it's, it's both the song itself and there have been some beautiful videos made of it, including one of uh, um, an orchestra playing it with gas masks, and this was circulating online. So there's there's been a lot of play with um, with it itself. But the lyrics, I mean, it has a it, it has a rousing feel. It has an appeal to, um, I mean, it has an appeal to lack of a better word, patriotism. Whether you think of that to you know a country or to a, a community, it's really calling for atta- It's an expression of attachment, intense attachment. Let's give it a quick listen. So Jeff, I mean, what strikes me about it musically is that it's in a meter that is very deliberately evocative of two songs that we've already mentioned. One is the Marseillais, and the other is that Broadway song from Les Mis. You know, um, do you hear the people sing? It's it seems like it's got to be intentional. It's in that six eight time. It's in the same basic um, tempo, and it has that that sort of anthemic grandiosity to it. Uh, yeah, I agree totally. I think musically that's that's what's going on. Is it then is it supposed to do you reckon it to be a pro independence anthem? So I think um I mean so the the whole notion of independence gets so wrapped up. I mean the way I the way I like to think about this and this is where I'll get sort of I'll I'll go academic on it a little bit let's sure. say. So Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities is the most influential text on nationalism that's come out of the academy. Right. But what he says is what's interesting about nations, he says, is and well, he says that every community is an imagined one, larger than a small village where everybody knows everybody else. When you talk about 
being attached to a city. You don't know the other people in that city. If you say, I love New York, or you say, I'm proud to be an Angelino, you're, you're talking about a connection to all sorts of people that you've never come into contact with. Right. So the nation is the ultimate example of, of this on a large scale. And imagine communities has been interpreted as just being about nations. And he says, the thing about um, the way we imagine nations, is we imagine them as a family writ large, the metaphors of kinship, and we imagine them as home. Right. But he says other communities can be, are imagined communities too that you feel an attachment to. So actually what he just said about imagining it as a family writ large and as home is something people also feel about cities, even when they're part of countries. So I guess this is, you know, the hedging of it is that definitely when people, when people take to the streets now, they're taking to the streets out of love of Hong Kong as a specific political community. Whether they can imagine that community being part somehow of a country, some probably still can, but they want it to be a special part of it. Others want it to be its own thing. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, 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 I've been thinking about this a lot because um, at the moment I feel very, very alienated from the United States as a country, but I still feel very attached to California. <laughs> so I've taken to sometimes talking about living in the special administrative region of California. <laughs> Separatism. <laughs> and, you know, and I was, I was at a protest in Hong Kong as an observer in 2016, and then I came back here, and a few weeks later I was at the Women's March in L.A., and I thought about this kind of parallel of saying that, like, I'm here because I don't like what the old men in the capital are doing, and I don't want them to tell me how to be. And so it was a bit like being in, a, in an SAR. It was different, though, because the mayor of Los Angeles turned out to speak to us. And, uh, you know, so it's quite different. Kerry is not going to do that. But I think if we want to cheat on this, is it can be, it can work. It certainly works if you're pro-independence. I think if, you're, if, if you feel pro-independence and you hear glory to Hong Kong, it'll stir your heart. But you could be not pro-independence, just really love Hong Kong and want it to be itself, even if it's part of a, a larger country, and also like that song. So I, I actually went and uh, I found what seems like an official translation, uh, an authorized official version of uh, in English. Though. And I, I wouldn't presume to say that the Chinese has written, you know, in Mandarin would be the same as a Cantonese speaker would understand it. So I, I don't want to attempt any of my own translation here. But the official English translation reads, in angst, tears are shed o'er this land. With rage, fears are crushed in arms we stand. We rise undefiled, our voice shall never die. As we yearn, our freedom nighs. I'm not sure what nighs is. I'm not sure that either. Yeah. It's like grows nigh, I suppose. Um, with eyes blinded, long it comes the night. In faith, banners high, we pledge to fight. Our flesh sacrificed, our blood shall write this song. Free this land, stand with Hong Kong. Obviously, there's a lot that was, you know, forced in, into rhyme here. Stars will fall and darkness fills the air. Storms will break, be dazzled by our gallant flares. We shall strike this perilous night, determined to fight with hope, with song, with dignity. Glory enshrined, break our chains, hold our lines. Freedom shall rise, revolution of our time. Liberty thrives, rights divine. In our unending strides, glory be to thee, Hong Kong. So 
I mean, we, without going into a, a, a deep exegesis of it, there are lines in there that are clearly evocative of other pieces of text in in other songsters. You know, the flares, the the you know, which is the rocket's red glare, sort of. Um, there, there's um this breaking of chains, which is ironically, you know, very much like most of the communist anthems that you'll you'll actually mm, hear. Mm, good um, point. Right. Uh, a, a lot of it it makes reference to other sort of things that are already mimetic within the Hong Kong protest tradition. Um, things like, well, the front lines and you know. Well, right, right. Then, but there was there was uh, well, obviously stand stand with Hong Kong was was is, was part of it, but. There was also um, um, the sort of biblical feel of it, uh, which is is the hymnal kind of feel to it too, uh, which is evocative of the, the singing of the Hallelujah. Uh, right, and there and there is a you know there there have been a fair number of the leaders of the, the Hong Kong movement at different point. Now it's fairly leaderless, but in the earlier iterations, some of the leaders have been um, Christian. And if Joshua Wong, the Christianity, his Christianity matters. One of the well, actually, two of the organizers of the Occupy movement of the older generation, one was a reverend and the other, Benny Tai, talks a lot about faith. Right. And there is that that kind of um, – that element to it as well. It wasn't just hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so very interesting. I think I'd love to see somebody actually offer a direct translation – uh, from Cantonese of it, I'd, I'd like to, to understand better what it would actually says and, and how that holds up against the, the English translation that they have. Just uh, to mention, Sebastian Vague is somebody who's written some of the best stuff about the symbolism of um, the Umbrella Movement, and now he's working on 2019. Oh, great! And he's written about songs and the Umbrella Movement, so he'll be the one. I will reach out to him, to. Sebastian. Yeah. If you're listening, give me a shout. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the impact of this song, "Glory to Hong Kong"? How much did it energize the movement? Did it really sort of give it a new life and a new focus? I mean, my sense just watching it from from the distance was that it was quite impactful, that it really did uh, make the splash that uh, I think its composers obviously thought that it, or were hoping that it would. Yeah, I think it did. It had It had a real impact. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about studying social movements is – there always are unpredictable moments that things happen. There, there are events that happen that take things to a different level. Um, there can be things that if they were just, if they didn't exist, the, the whole arc would be different. In 1989, I think the protests would have been very different if um, People's Daily hadn't come out with an editorial denouncing the protesters and describing them as rioters. And that gave people something to focus on. That's a kind of negative thing. And in 1989, there were certain things. The goddess of democracy was just something that energized sure. people. In 89, they had just they, were, they had a surfeit of powerful symbols right. uh, that available, in, available to them. In the Hong Kong movement, um, in, during the Umbrella movement, it was energized by the use of tear gas by by the authorities. It was also energized by the eponymous umbrella. By yeah. the umbrella, yeah, absolutely. A, so one of the things that this movement was lacking, and actually is still lacking, is a, is a clearly identified name. For a while, people were suggesting maybe it could be the hard hat revolution. The water revolution. Or, yeah, or the helmet revolution or the be water revolution, but nothing's completely caught. I think hmm. the be water symbol was one of the things, the idea of that, of flexible tactics, a different way of being. But I think the song has been a connecting, a drawing together thing that um, – I hadn't thought about it this way, but well, the glorious like the revolution's already taken. <laughs> it's already taken, so you can't call it that. But having something that people can kind of agree on—that this speaks to what we're about—and hmm. mm-hmm. there and there still isn't. There still isn't a name. 
it's really interesting. I think Jamil Anderlini was one who suggested the water revolution. I, I'm surprised that hasn't taken on as much sort of permanence as I, I would have expected. I thought that once that was once that had escaped his lips, that was it. I mean, yeah. Well, certainly the term "be water" has 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 resonated, hmm. and I think it's interesting. It's one of the things that has um, been exportable. That even if the Hong Kong movement fails at everything it's trying to do locally, it's already had it's already made contributions to the kind of global repertoire of protest uh we've seen it there uh the idea of occupying a an airport just wasn't something that really happened and now it's happened in some other places places like catalonia they're looking at hong kong looking to hong kong and the hong kong movement of course have always been looking to other places that's right in 2014 for um young hong kong protesters the sunflower events in taiwan were very important and of course, before it was called the Umbrella Movement or Umbrella Revolution, it was called the Occupy Movement. Right. And that was inspired partly by uh, people who were looking to places like Occupy Wall Street. Um, that's great. Tell me about this book you're working on right now, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. Um, it's due out in February. Uh, and I imagine we'll have you back on the show when it comes out and we can talk about it. But That'd um, be great. Give, so, give us a preview. So I started writing it. I, I signed up to do it early this year. And actually, the idea, it's for the series called Columbia Global Reports, uh, which puts out very short books on pressing issues of the moment, often by journalists. Um, there's one in the works by Darren Byler, who's sub-China, mm -hmm. um, a sub-China writer, uh, is going to be on Xinjiang. Um and the idea is to to do the kind of long-form writing by journalists that's harder to get into magazines now or to have academics writing in a, in a kind of accessible reportage mode. But when I signed on to do it at the beginning of 2019, my idea was it would largely be the sort of arc from the handover and before the handover up through the umbrella movement and then the kind of a mood of despair that had had taken hold and largely a kind of feeling that the movement, the space for for protest was, um, was shrinking yeah. and the desire maybe even was shrinking that maybe there was just a sense of being beaten down. And of course, then with June, I and actually I thought I was going to go to Hong Kong, I knew, for the 30th anniversary of the June 4th massacre vigil. And Hong Kong and Macau are the only two parts of the PRC where you can publicly commemorate um, the massacre of 1989, and Hong Kong's the only place where a really large-scale vigil takes place. Right. So I was going to go there for the vigil, uh, which I've never attended, and that would kind of make the end point, and it would make an end point um, with me wondering if one year, five years from now, you would still be able to commemorate it, or if the distance between Hong Kong and mainland cities would have shrunk so much that you couldn't do that. And then, of course, things took a radically different Turn when <laughs> the, the word vigil grew. no longer means right and vigil um so vigil had this other sense of sort of sitting vigil over an endangered um loved one and so for hong kong vigil that way but actually now when i was just in hong kong though this won't be in the book because i i used october 1st as a stopping point for the I book see. i yeah. wrote it very quickly and i thought october 1st was a good end point even though the movement was continuing because October 1st, there was the giant planned celebration in right. Beijing to mark 70th, 70 years of the PRC. And at the same time, there was yet another protest in Hong Kong challenging that. And there was the first use of live ammunition by the police. So that seemed to be 
an endpoint. But things have happened since then. And when I was just there last week, one of the last things I saw was a vigil of sorts uh, organized by high school students. Very moving. Um, several hundred high school students were there, and it began with a moment of silence, in part for there haven't been large scale, uh, there hasn't been any kind of massacre, though some people have worried about it. But there have been um, some people have died, either suicides or one student who um, fell off of a fell off of a parking, a parking garage, and is that's interpreted as having been sort of driven to his death by tear gas and by the police. At least that's how it's understood by a lot of um, the students um, there. And so this was a moment of silence for him and also for the others who've been been harmed or died during the movement. So right. it was a very kind of vigil-like vigil -like moment. But the book is a short one. It's um, about 20,000 words. Um, and so it's very short. About a hundred pages. It's a New Yorker article. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Lightly, lightly footnoted, largely, um, and it tries to weave in. It has a bit about music, um, but it also brings in um, films and novels and the ways in which different kinds of different kinds of artistic expression serve as expression or templates for action. And I, I do what I think I can bring to it. I've, I've been going to Hong Kong since the mid-1980s, and I bring in my experiences with that, and I observe some of the umbrella movement, and I've observed different events since then. But what I think I bring to the table that's different is a sense of interesting comparisons and um, what I call imperfect analogies. There's no perfect analogy for what's going on there. It's not umbrella 2.0. The protesters want to make it different from what was there in 2014. It's not Tiananmen 2.0 either for all sorts of reasons. But there are, I think, parallels that if you realize they're flawed can help us understand. Um, one of the parallels I bring in is Shanghai before 1949. The kinds of protests that took part there, the kind of repression mm -hmm. there, the, the local authorities are doing some things the Nationalist Party would understand, including working with gangsters to try to um, intimidate protesters. That was something that was done by the Guomindang before sure. it was done by others. Um, there's also some ways in which the dilemma that people are facing in Hong Kong now, do I stay? Do I leave? Will this still be a place 10 years down the line that I can make the kind of life uh, I lead if, say, you're a cosmopolitan-minded intellectual or filmmaker or writer? Those were questions people were asking themselves in Shanghai in the 1940s. So there is sort of parallels there. But the other parallel I bring in that I think um, is very useful in thinking about Carrie Lam's position and the Hong Kong authorities where they have to look to Beijing for guidance on what to do, but they're also trying to present themselves as separate. It reminds me a lot of the situations that cycling back to the Czech, Czechoslovakia and other places, the satellite states within the Soviet empire were in a sort of similar position. Hmm. In Poland in 1981, Solidarity had a giant movement, and then it was suppressed locally by um, by the Polish authorities, who were also looking to Moscow for what would happen. And in the past, Moscow had brought in troops to suppress things when things got out of hand, but they wanted to handle it locally. And yeah, they're, in 1981, yeah. they did. So those those are the kinds of parallels. They're not perfect, and you can't push them too far. But I think they can they can get us out of the box of thinking, even though what's happening in Hong Kong is unique and of this moment. It's also something that can be understood in some ways through comparison and history. Well, Jeff, your last book was all about 
uh, historical analogies. I guess you haven't gotten it all out of your system. It's just how yet. my mind works. I just find <laughs> comparisons just so interesting. Yeah, yeah, they really are. Looking around the world right now, there are uh, street revolutions breaking out in a, quite a number of geographies, everywhere from Santiago, Chile. They actually had to move COP25 all to, to Madrid because of that. Um, you know, God, there's, there's too many places right now to, to even name. Do you think that these are, that Hong Kong is of a piece with these? Do you think that there's been uh, inspiration traveling in either direction from from these? Or do you think that these are quite different in character because most of these that are happening around around the world are sort of, I think, can be understood as the revolt against neoliberalism, whereas Hong Kong maybe is different. Do How do you, how, what's your take on that? So my take on this, you know, again, historically is to think that in fact, you have both things going on in years of, of pro, when it seems that there are protests around the world. They're both connecting threads and things that are different, but in part, something seems to be in the air. Sure. Yeah. And people can borrow a tactic from another place that has nothing to do with the cause of the other place. So this was true in 89, the protests, there were protests in China, of course, and in Eastern Europe. And in some ways, they were very different, even though they were, we, we thought of them as being more similar because they were all in Communist Party-run places. But the Chinese protests were about getting the Communist Party to live up to its own ideals. The protests in parts of Eastern Europe were just sick of uh, the Communist Party rule. And in parts of Eastern Europe, Communist Party rule was seen as an external imposition. Right. In China, it was seen as an, an internal thing. Force, right. So, and I think when we look back other places in 1919, 100 years ago was a year when there were protests around the world in Korea, in China, in India, in Egypt, all of which were anti-colonial in some way or another. It was also when the Seattle general strike, huh. uh, if you go back to, right. to this. And the Seattle general strike was very different, but in Hong Kong, in Shanghai, during the May 4th movement, there was a general strike. So, you know, you have some things where maybe some of the tactics are the same, but the causes are different. Now, at the moment, before the Hong Kong protests, there were the yellow vests. Sure. Which were also flexible protests, leaderless protests, blocking of roads. Some of that carries over, and yet other things about them are radically different. Right. Catalonia may have some things that you could connect up to Hong Kong, Chile, Miami, much right, less. Right. We had a very interesting event here on, um, we call them pop-up panels that we do when we're trying to get, rather than the typical academic thing is you plan something at a university and it takes six months or a year to do it. We try to do it instantly. And we did one bringing together Chile, Haiti, another place mm, right. where people are in the streets, and Lebanon, and put these together and tried to look at what was similar and what was different. And you find some shared characteristics, even when they're also different. So this is another place where I think the imperfect analogies idea, it's not just historical analogies. Also, when things are happening simultaneously, they're not going to be the same. But if there's an awareness of each other, there's going to be some, some Transmission flow. Transmission of ideas and stuff, yeah. The Les, the Les Miserables song we've been talking about was sung by South Korean protesters uh, during the candlelight. Huh revolution so you know you can you can see different things you can sing the same song in a different context you can use the same tactic indeed so i look forward to talking to you about the book when you are on the east coast on your tour um let's 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 do an event together it'd be great yeah be let's, great. that'll be a lot of fun uh jeff it's it's been great having you on let's uh, move on to our recommendations section but first let me remind listeners that the cynic podcast is powered by sub china 
If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best thing that you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. This thing is really chock full of great reads on China, delivered to your inbox every day. Uh, every weekday, anyway. Jeremy and Lucas and Jiayun and Anthony、uh, are working really, really hard to bring you this product. It's terrific value for money. So, sign up, spread the word, and let's move on to recommendations. Jeff, what do you have for us, man? So Let, let's、um, stay with music. Yeah. yeah, let's stay with music. Well, I mean, there's this this book by Linda Javen, "The Monkey and the Dragon," which、oh, yeah, goes back、yeah. to 1989, which is really、um, it's a wonderful read, and、uh, I don't think and it actually I talk about it in the Nation piece that you you mentioned, but The book that I would give as a recommendation, going outside of China, but sticking with music, is "33 Revolutions Per Minute" <laughs> by、uh, the、well、Guardians.、Titled. The Guardians music、uh, critic Dorian Linsky,、um, who's actually shares—I've never met him—but he shares two of my obsessions. One is protest songs. The other is George Orwell. He just wrote a book,、ah. "Ministry of Truth," about 1984. But in "33 Revolutions Per Minute," he gives these wonderful essays about. Um, a series of protest songs: the derivation,、um, where they came from, the impact they had. And when I read it, I thought what was missing was、um, a chapter about Sui Jian's "Nothing to My Name," which you know, <laughs> if I if I were going to critique the book, that's that's what would、uh, do it. But it's wonderful to dip into. Yeah, that's a, that's great. I'm definitely going to check that book out. I'm, I'm just going to recommend a couple of things that have been on on pretty steady rotation for me. Um, it's just become one of my favorite albums. Period. I think there's just not a weak moment on it. It's the Dire Straits album,、um, "Making Movies," which is just perfect. You know, it's one. It starts with with、um, with Tunnel of Love, and it's got Romeo and Juliet on it,、uh, and、uh, Skate Away, and and Expresso Love. The, the, just a lot of the songs that you know you know and love, but. The recording quality is phenomenal, and and Knopfler is just amazing. He's just what what a what a great craftsman he he's、It's、always、true. been.、It's、and、true. I mean, I, I've I listened to a lot of Dire Straits albums, and really, this is the one. This is them at their peak. Another I want to recommend is something I've been listening to a lot recently, just because I'm reconnecting with my old college buddies, and something we listen to constantly. Uh, in various mental states in in the eighties, it's one of the solo albums by Genesis's old guitarist Steve Hackett. It's called Voyage of the Acolyte, and it, it to me it's it's pretty much the it's it's what progressive rock was supposed to be. I mean, it has just all of everything that you you, you want from it. Just the beauty, the tra- transcendent beauty,、uh, that that kind of、um, kind of an overarching kind of symphonic cog.、Uh, Concept theme running across it, but it's nothing on the nose,、uh, and there's this sort of mysticism to it. And、uh, I, I love Hackett's playing. He's one of the guitarists who most influenced me、uh, growing up. And so, "Voyage of the Acolyte" by Steve Hackett. Anyway, Jeff, man, what a pleasure talking, hanging out, and talking music and politics with you. Nothing better than talking about protests, talking about music. That's right,、what、pleasure.、Man. Okay,、uh, we'll talk to you again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email, really do, at Seneca at SubChina dot com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News, and make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network, which is growing.、Um, and watch the space for announcements for new network shows, which are coming soon. Thanks very much for listening. We will see you next week, and take care.